0: Today is a um, another special one for me, Danny, the host of Treatment Room Secrets, because episode 20, episode 10, I celebrated by um, getting on the podcast on my own. So I spoke to myself or I spoke to the audience with myself only in the room um, for an hour plus about a bunch of things we've learned in the first nine episodes. So now we're at 20. Uh, maybe I'll throw in a couple things that came up in the first 19, um, but a new one today. Um, we are here with Mr. Bob McAdee. Thank you very much for being here. Coming my,
1: all th- my pleasure to be here. Yeah. All the
0: way from uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. That's right. Um, we're back here in Cary, North Carolina, the second largest town <laughs> in America, right. yeah. maybe in the world um and for the first time we're drinking alcohol booze um on the podcast so for the um, listeners who are not watching the video uh we do have beer here i thought and more cheers for episode 20 congratulations to us congratulations for our listeners who have stuck with us until now and uh, hopefully many more to go And we're also celebrating a couple days of uh, good work, um, talking a lot about sports massage, talking a lot about um, um, different modalities that are involved in massage and just another way of helping people, helping people um, relieve themselves from uh, some pain and trying to equip therapists with um, the tools to help their clients, help their patients. I will take a sip of my beer. The reason I uh, think that it's uh, worth mentioning the beer is because, you know, we categorize this podcast as a health and fitness um, and therapy podcast. So uh, so having beer might look weird to people, so I'm just prefacing it. Um, we did have uh, Coca-Cola on one episode, I think, as well, which I did not mention and now I think I should have. Um, but just so I think the listeners, I think it's important to know that we're, or I am, Neil Asher, we are... Nat global global campus we're somewhat normal we do drink in uh, in the celebratory occasions so Bob thank you very much for being here today we'll talk a lot about um, sports massage um, about you and the first when we met up this morning I told you straight away that my calves have basically locked up on me and it hasn't really relieved itself uh, since and it's because I went on a run with uh, new shoes barefoot shoes that I um, have spoken about on the podcast before Um, I have been trying to teach myself to run with barefoot shoes um, slowly slowly and it's been a 7 month journey so far. Today I ran for 25 minutes with my barefoot shoes, vivo barefoot shoes um, and it's the most I ran with them. And as- towards the end of my run, I could feel my calves not cramping, but signaling to me that I should stop because um, I think they they were overstrained. I don't know if you can correct me if I'm using the wrong term, but they felt overstrained, overfatigued, unable to carry um, all my weight for so long. And they needed a break. And as soon as I finished, I felt them seize up and they have not released. And if someone saw me walking... Um, Outside, when I walked earlier to get us some coffees, um, they would think that something was wrong with me. So hopefully in the next couple of days it clears up and I can um, take maybe a uh, step back and um, reintegrate myself into this barefoot running in a more um, conservative way, and I will. Um, So if I came to you as a client, what would you tell me? Well... Excuse oh, me. How, how could, help? Me. Yeah, how no could I help you? Well, how could you
1: help me because my calves are in pain? Well, if only we would have had time during the filming today to throw you on the table and do some of the sports massage work that we were demonstrating. I know. I am not I'm helped not, you a lot. I'm not, However, I'm not as um, appealing as um, <laughs> the model that came in. <laughs> but, you know, as a sports massage therapist, we work with all types of people, body types, et cetera. And you're certainly an athlete. Um, I guess... The first thing that I would say is I believe you're correct. You went from running 5 to 10 minutes in these barefoot shoes to all of a sudden doing 25 minutes because it felt good for the first 20 couple of minutes, right? 22 minutes. And then all of a sudden you were like, oh, that's maybe too much. And I do think you've probably overloaded your calf muscles because when you're trying to move from being a heel strike runner to a midfoot runner, which is what the barefoot shoes promote, um, your muscles have to adapt to that and in the the midfoot strike you're avoiding being on the heel so you're much more up using your calves much more to keep you up in like plantar flexion as you roll over that foot during the running stride. So have you come across um individuals?
0: I mean, I'm thinking because um, Colorado, Boulder, Colorado Springs. I, I've, I hear a lot of um, people are open-minded around there. Um, so, have you come across individuals who um, who are running with barefoot shoes, who are facing in- new injuries because of their attempt to run um, with? The, is it the midfoot strike you said? The midfoot
1: strike, yes, or the forefoot strike, Four. Some, yeah. sometimes called uh, running more on the balls of your feet than than landing on your heel first. And the theory behind barefoot shoes and forefoot running is that if you're a heel striker, which is kind of the classic running style where you land on the edge of your heel and then roll through your foot, um, biomechanically that does appear that every time you strike with the heel, you're getting a little bit of braking action. So it's slowing you down and you're putting a lot of shock up through the lower extremity. Whereas with forefoot running, uh, you're not you're not having that break first of all, and number two, you're not on your feet for very long. So running is a lot like flying anyway. Most of the running stride, both feet are off the ground. Yeah. So that brief contact with uh, the ground in the forefoot uh, is less stressful overall, except it puts a lot more stress on the calf muscles because you're in that plantar flex plantar flexion position with a lot of weight on your body. And which
0: and, again for 99% of my life I've been training to heel strike to heel strike and not putting so much pressure on my calves.
1: Right. Um, they used to say in running that every time you're you've had a foot strike it was you were absorbing two and a half times your body weight. I'm not I don't know if that science holds if that theory holds for four foot running, but certainly <clears throat> one foot the forefoot foot is supporting all of your weight if not two and a half times your body weight and because you're in that sh- calf shortened position most of the time when you strike the calf just works a lot harder. So I would say you overloaded your calf today because you ran uh, 25 minutes instead of 10. If we go back to the old uh, sort of exercise theory that you should only increase your training 10 percent a week, right, if we, if we Look at your mileage, right, five to ten minutes of running in barefoot shoes, a ten percent increase would have been do the math a minute or two at a time, right so um, when you put it that way now yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it makes it yeah. makes sense yeah uh, <clears throat> so going forward, there's two things to think about you've been transitioning for seven months to be a barefoot runner and As you said earlier, a running coach told you that you should think about running more slowly to build resilience in your muscles. Episode 18. Pardon me? Episode 18. Oh, episode 18. (laughs) I haven't listened to that one yet. Um, And who was the coach? It was Stephanie Natchek. Oh, Stephanie Natchek. Yes, I think I follow her on LinkedIn. Uh, Oh, that's awesome. At at any rate, um, you increase your mileage too much at once, number one. Um, I guess the larger question for me would be, is barefoot running appropriate for you? You're challenging me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think I'm <laughs>
0: challenging myself to uh-huh. to figure out if it's appropriate for <clears throat> me or not. <clears throat> um, I do know that running 15 minutes with them is appropriate in terms of my body's reaction to it. Um, 25 minutes, obviously not. Not, okay. Um, today. Today, um, not
1: today, Right. <laughs>
0: Um, what I'm hoping is however many months it make, it takes to make the appropriate transition and I will probably have to make it a bit more conservative, especially after the feedback I received today from my guests and from you, mm-hmm. is um, mm. to be able to heel strike when I want to heel strike and forefoot strike when I want to forefoot st- strike. Um,
1: Did Stephanie uh, have any comments about Sort of the average time it takes for a runner to transition from heel to forefoot.
0: Not really, um, but the, her feedback was that a lot of the time people get injured when trying to make the transition. Yes, they do. Uh, so I'm trying to challenge myself to be able to do it injury-free. Um, yeah. So and, and I will, and I'll keep the podcast updated. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but in terms of um, like sports massage, for example, right. so obviously you know, now intuitively. I feel like getting a massage on my calves would be the – I couldn't think of anything better. Mm -hmm. Um, In your experience, would that be the best thing for me to do? Not the best. It doesn't have to be the best. But would that be a net positive thing for me to do right now?
1: I would say absolutely. Why? Because uh, the muscles have been overloaded. They're probably still a little spasmy. If we were to go in and start to do massage work on them, we'd probably find – what would feel like knots in your muscles or super tight fibers in your gastrocnemius and your soleus. Uh, maybe a little soreness on your Achilles tendon because tendons get injured when the stresses on the tendon tissue is more than they can tolerate, okay? Now the good thing is it's, you've only done this once, so you're not developing a long-term injury, right, this is a more a temporary setback, if you will. Yep. So massage therapy would be designed to help relieve the tension and the spasmy feeling in the tissues, bring more oxygenated blood into the muscles, uh, help remove any um, metabolic waste that might have accumulated because we think... There's a lot of stuff in massage that we have a hypothesis for. We have yeah. an idea about how it works, but research continues to maybe be uh, equivocal about whether what we say is happening is really happening. At any rate, <laughs> your your nervous system is telling you that your calf muscles hurt. It's getting your brain is getting enough signals from your calf that are noxious. Right, your your calf is reporting up. Through the spinal cord to the brain like, there's a lot of stuff going on here in the brain, if we're thinking about the wider aspects of research in pain science, the brain gets to decide whether what you're feeling is pain or something that's not pain. So because your brain is reporting pain to you, uh, there's going to be other compensations that you've been making. I didn't see you walk to get coffee, but I'm guessing you're a little stiff in the legs and feet. And and so that's the way that your nervous system has gone, okay, we have an issue here. We need to modify the way things work to reduce pain, prevent further injury, you know, whatever else is going on as far as how you're adapting to the pain you're feeling in your calves. So if we come back to doing sports massage for you, again, we have these sports massage interventions that – we used to explain as being very mechanical, we're releasing stuff in the tissues, we're doing this and that in the tissues. And what we mostly talk about now is how the massage work affects the reporting of all those mechanoreceptors in the calves to the brain to help reduce the sense of pain and introduce sensations that are more pleasurable, feel more relaxed. And then the nerve system reduces its threat level in the calves and allows the calves to relax and return to a more normal state. I mean, that's kind of a long-winded explanation for what probably is going on. No, no, it's that's, way that's, more complicated than yeah. we normally talk about with clients. It's like we're doing sports massage because it's going to help improve the tone and tension of your calf muscles. You and know? it'll and it'll feel good. <laughs> and it'll feel good, by the way, um, mostly. It shouldn't hurt. It might be uncomfortable but shouldn't be painful. But you are
0: you described there a maybe a um an evolution of what um you know sports massage was thought as and what it is now. Um can you explain that again what you mentioned? Cuz you said it was more mechanical and now it's focusing more on the pain receptors.
1: Right. And not just sports massage but a massage of any kind, any body work, physiotherapy modalities that manipulate muscle tissue. Um, the thinking now is that well in the the old explanation was that s- massage work would um, m- sort of by the work itself on the tissue help it to relax, uh, mechanically kind of manipulate the tissue so that it would relax and respond and And uh, pain would be reduced because the muscle was more supple. You know, we reduced the excessive tone. We reduced the tension in the tissue, which took some of the pressure off the tendon. Therefore, the whole complex was in a more, uh, what we say, sort of normalized state. The... what happens with exercise is oftentimes, um, as a result of the load on the tissues, they tend to, act, especially at the, when they're in the fatigue state, it, and I'm not sure this science is still correct, but it used to be that we thought that because uh, the muscle was had been contracted and relaxed, contracted, and relaxed over and over, it tended to stay in a more contracted, restated, contracted in a more contracted state at the end of exercise because it just was out of juice, so to speak, to allow it to completely relax again. So massage and stretching were thought to help return the muscle to its normal resting length with its normal like tone. So not spasmy, not feeling like it was going to go into spasm or cramp. So now, <clears throat> Given the advances in research and pain science, that explanation may or may not be completely accurate. So we know in the tissues, there are all kinds of receptors, mechanoreceptors. Not, and we're not calling them pain receptors. We call them uh, tissues that record pressure, temperature, speed of change of the muscle tissue of the muscle fibers, that would be like muscle spindles. Uh, pressure, Mechanoreceptors that record pressure. Um, So
0: instead of defining everything as pain, trying to break it down to more quantifiable variables.
1: Right. And so some of these receptors will send, I mean they all report through the nervous system to the brain, which then takes in also the environment, your background, your social history, your psychology, have you had injuries? Have you had conditions like this before that the brain can compare to? Uh, the brain in, 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 you know, like less than milliseconds makes a decision about what to report to the nervous system about what's going on there. So what I think what we're saying is that all the work that we do with manual therapy or sports massage or other kinds of hands-on work, that's all still good our explanation of why it works is what's changing. And you know, we're in a we're in a transition in my profession where a lot of what we used to think we knew now seems to be all up in the air. It's, now we're in kind of a gray area. Like, should I keep doing what I'm doing? Mm. And there are a lot of elements in the hands on therapy world that are coming up with other theories and different ideas about whether Deep pressure is necessary to affect the nervous system for input and output of signals, whether it's pain or not pain. Um, some folks are saying you can just work on the skin by itself and that's enough. Um, personally, for me, that drives me crazy. You know, I like massage work. I like. I don't like painful massage, but I like deep massage. Right, and. In terms of what you practice? In terms of what I like to receive. Receive. In terms of what I like to receive. And of course, I'm trying to provide the kind of work that I like to get. I mean, you know, this is like, I know this feels good to me. This has worked for me in the past. So based on my education and experience, I'm trying to put together the same kind of treatment sessions for my clients. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) Is there... In your opinion, yeah. is there any merit to maybe researchers or studies that come out that maybe, you know, try to debunk um, the any legitimacy that's involved in receiving a massage in terms of uh, maintenance or muscle recovery?
1: You know, as we were talking about earlier today, there's research on either side of that question. There's plenty of research that indicates that massage is not really uh, effective for injury prevention or performance enhancement, um, recovery from auto accidents, you know, people with whiplash injuries or other soft tissue injuries. There is also research that shows that certain types of massage do have a positive effect on the outcomes in some of those categories. The problem with research, in my opinion, is because massage therapy, manual therapy, other hands-on practices are so personal, it's hard to design a double-blind study that can actually give you good results, especially because a lot of the results are subjective reports from the clients or in the study from the study participants. Right, So they have a study where they have, let's say, 20 college students they've recruited because that's where a lot of the research is done, right? Um, 10 of them are in a control group which does something that's not massage. 10 of them are in a group where they apply some kind of massage treatment. It's typically like to a body part, not always applied by a professional massage therapist. And then they try to, you know, they they tr- they try to control for as many variables as they can. But if I'm, if you're a, a college student receiving uh, a 20 minute massage once a week on your calves from the same person, even if they're not a trained masseuse, from the same person, you develop a relationship with that person as well. It's not just you're not an inert object being manipulated by an outside force. And the massage may be a little different each time, even though the protocol says the massage, the therapist is gonna do three minutes of this and two minutes of this and you know five minutes of that or how, however it's set up. There's, the tissue feels different every time it's worked on. And so that changes the intensity, the way it feels, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. And so then they, they, so then you have those 10 people in that group, all with really ten different experiences, yeah. and each experience of each of each of those people is different each time. Then you have a control group who does maybe they stretch, maybe they meditate, maybe they have muscle stem, whatever the control element is, and even there, even though maybe they're doing something that's more mechanical. Um, every time those control people come in they're different than they were before you know the muscle tissue is different based on whatever they've been doing for the in the intervening time so i think it makes it really hard to have a double blind study that you can replicate because there's so much that you can't control for in a in you know research situation yeah so
0: so you've been doing this for 40-odd years. 40-odd
1: 40 years. 42 plus, let's see, I, I, I actually did my first massage training in 1976, but I don't count that because I was just kind of, it was just for fun. And I tried to do a little bit of massage here and there, but nothing. I never really never really pursued it. So Then in 1981 is when I, that's when I, Target as my start date because I went back to massage school to do some more training.
0: So can I ask you who was Bob McAtee pre-massage?
1: Sure. I was a um, – I I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, I graduated high school from a Catholic seminary. So I spent the last two years of high school in a Catholic seminary in Cincinnati. Realized that being a priest wasn't for me. Moved back home to Youngstown and uh, uh, enrolled in Youngstown State University. Um, My initial uh, degree, I was planning to major in languages. Awesome. I I was planning to major in languages I think with the idea that, oh, I'll learn how to speak French and I can become a translator and then I can travel, you know, internationally. Um, or was traveling you know, then like... The traveling, like, yeah, was yeah, I, I already, tra- already traveling was in my idea, mm-hmm. um, yeah.
0: And the seminary, was it personal ambition in the beginning or pressure from the outside?
1: Well, I grew up in a Catholic family, you know, and there's a certain amount of... I wouldn't say pressure, but a lot of Catholic families have expectations, you know. And uh, I wasn't the oldest son. My sister had already entered the convent. <laughs> I think she entered the convent before I did. Uh, she didn't stay either, but. Uh, so <clears throat> in my town, they had this program the, where they recruited juniors and seniors in high school boys to, and we actually got recruited when we were freshmen in high school they were trying to get us before puberty really kicked in, before the hormones really kicked in. You know, it's like, oh, this is a good thing for you. And your parents will really be proud of you. And, you know, I'm from an Irish Catholic family. So if, and I, to be honest, my brother and I had gotten into some trouble, too. So there was that incentive to prove that I was a good boy. You know, yeah. anyway. What trouble, may, I, may oh, I ask? A little vandalism here and there. Yeah, yeah. Uh so anyway <laughs> I I do think uh my memories are starting to be a little vague but my brother and I and my dad were uh we needed to uh go to our local police station for a conversation <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, that was so. <laughs> that was another little bit of outside pressure. Yeah. So, uh, and I was—I mean, I have to say, I was interested. And in the the priest who led our our little group in my parish, I liked the guy. He was a fairly new priest. He was young. He was athletic. You know, he was very positive. <laughs> and In fact, Athletic. He was a runner. He yeah, was yeah. a runner, you that's know. Funny. And yeah. you know, I that's, that's, that's not how, uh, not, It's not
0: the word I expected uh, a, to for, come out as a characterization for a, for a
1: priest. Yeah, <laughs> he he was new out of the seminary at that time. I, I didn't realize all this until later. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I would, I would go run with him a little bit. I was never really good at running. I didn't really like it that much. But it was it was fun to be outside and kind of hang out with him a little bit, you know. And, talk about the priesthood and what it was like for him. And Anyway, and just as an aside, I recently re- reconnected with him because he's now, let's see, I'm almost 75. He's 80-something, still lives in Ohio. He and I have sort of been in touch over the years because my mother and he developed a nice relationship. Anyway, a couple of years ago, he emailed me and said, hey, Bob, this is... Father McCarns, I hope you remember me from Saint Charles. I have this injury. I was hoping you could help me with this. <laughs> 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 That's amazing. Oh, so and what I you haven't spoken to him for forty I, years? Or well, 50 no, years? But, uh, but he's had he's had he's had copies of my s- f- stretching uh, book. My mo- my mother gifted him a copy of one of my early editions, and I I think I sent him. He's had a couple of editions, anyway. <laughs> So we've been in touch a little bit, but mostly through email. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, Father, I'll be happy to help you with that. I get to call him Jim now instead of. (laughs) And so I was able to sort of chat with him and find out what's going on with him. And then, you know, as I do with a lot of people who contact me from all over the world, really. Hey, I have this injury. I need some help with it can you help me or can you refer me to somebody? So I did a little research and I found a, not a massage therapist, but a physio in his, you know, in his town that had really good reviews. And uh, so I said, well, Jim, I can't come and do anything and you're not going to come from Ohio to Colorado for me to treat you. So uh, here's the next best thing we can do. Go see this guy and see what you think. And so he did. And He's written me back saying he's doing really well now, you know, so. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. you know, it's wow. <laughs> so like full circle. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. 50, 60-something years later, right? By the way, and have you, Jeff- have you big, been back to uh, Youngstown, Ohio at all
0: since uh, Oh, yeah, back?
1: I go uh, – I still have – I'm one of ten. Oh, wow. Uh, there's still nine of us left. My oldest brother passed away a few years ago. Um, so I still have siblings who live there and – I, <clears throat> a few friends. I don't, I don't stay in touch with too many people anymore from you know from high school. Uh, but I moved to so oh to get back. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. How did I end up in?
0: So you had the seminary. Oh
1: geez. I left the seminary, moved back to Youngstown, I moved back in with my parents, uh, started going to school at Youngstown State University, majoring in French. Right. <clears throat> Thinking I'd be a translator. Um, at some point in the three years I was there, I. I switched my major to psychology. Um, and during that time, a couple of friends of mine uh, decided to take the summer off and go to California. They ended; up, they were going to Long Beach, California, which is in the south. One of my friends' uncle and aunt lived there, so they had a connection. And uh, in that summer, which was then, let's see, 1969, I went out there for about 10 days and just hung out with them. And it was and I was like, well, this is really different than Youngstown, Ohio. I mean, I knew it was going to be because, you know, it was the 60s and it was Southern California. I mean, every, yeah. everybody was moving there then, right? It was after the Haight-Ashbury, you know, the – the All the – Everything, cr- the, all the hippie stuff that all was All the going creative on, people. All the creative people were out there. <laughs> and there was the beach and – Nice so, weather. Nice weather. 52 weeks a year. Man, I yeah. don't want to go back to Ohio winters. So so I had my vacation. I went back home, uh, f- attended th- my third year at Youngstown State, already making plans to move to California the next summer. Um, so uh, I had a part-time job while I was going to school, so I was able to save a little money. And the next summer I went out to California, uh, one of my my friend with the aunt and uncle had stayed. All of his buddies had already sort of come back. They weren't – they had just gone out there for the fun of it. Not They weren't planning to move there. So I was able to sort of crash with him for a while, met his aunt and uncle. Uh, well, I had met him before. They were really nice people. We went over there for dinner a couple times a week, you know. Uh, Uh, His uncle helped me get a job. You know, they co-signed a car loan for me. I mean, it was really great in those days. Um, And so that's how I ended up in California. And then in
0: 1970... But with no, like, back then, once you left the idea of being a translator, did you have a career in mind? Psychology.
1: Clinical psychology. Because I had started that psychology training at Youngstown State. Yeah. When I moved to California, of course I had no money. I think I left Youngstown with 100 dollars in my pocket and a car to sell which my sister sold for me and sent me the 500 dollars she got from the car. 1964 Ford Galaxy. Anyway, uh Oh, this is kind of fun to reminisce all this. Yeah, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> Um in those days, if you were a California resident, university was free since I had no money i had i just i just waited for a year to get my residency so that I could go back to school so after a year uh, my friend's uncle Ziggy had gotten me a job with a publishing company with uh, i'm sorry not a publishing company um distribution company for magazines and paperbacks. So I was working that job, saving some money. Once I got my residency, I rolled in Cal State Long Beach and continued my education toward my BA in psychology. So that's that was the those next couple of years. From 71, it took me until 74 to graduate because I was you know, I was working, going part time, and in those years, by the time I got my degree in psychology, I was like, "I don't want to be a, this. I don't want to be a clinical psychologist," <laughs> 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 uh, because I had some friends who were in. You know, you needed at least a master's degree to to get licensed yeah. or certified or whatever. It's yeah, like, it's the next like natural you, progression. Yeah. yeah, and I had a couple friends that I that were ahead of me in school and. They were in their master's program. They were the unhappiest people I knew, and I was like, "Yeah, I could see why this could get really tough listening to people all day." And they're—I mean, I have enough problems of my own. And you know what they say? Of course, people who study psychology are trying to sort out their own crap, you know, from childhood, et cetera. Anyway, (laughs) I was a juvenile delinquent, then I dropped out of the seminary. You know, I had. Anyway, focus on yourself. <laughs> focus on, <yeah. laughs> That's funny. So the good thing is, and, and long story bring us around to body work. Yeah. The good thing is, at the, in my last year of college at Cal State Long Beach, I started hearing about uh, these uh, body oriented therapies that were coming out of you know the sort of hippie New Age movement. Mm. Uh, you've heard of Esalen. The Esalen uh, retreat up in Northern California. I haven't. What is oh, it? it's. Uh, I've never been there, but I've wanted to go. It was famous for um, the setting, which is on a cliffside looking over the Pacific, and they hold all kinds of uh, human potential movement workshops. A lot of massage. There's a famous style of massage called Esalen massage. A lot of um, there's a, there were a lot of developments in what they <clears throat> I would call sort of Bodywork versus massage, and bodywork focused on uh, interacting with psychological issues as well. So um, things like bioenergetic therapy, um, Gestalt therapy. Fritz Perls is a famous guy who came up with Gestalt therapy. Anyway, there was there was all that stuff going on in the world of psychology that was kind of oriented toward body therapy, as a practice for getting at emotional content. And um, so I knew about this stuff, and and uh, I started hearing about a fellow by the name of Wilhelm Reich, and he developed a process called Reichian therapy, R-E-I-C-H-I-A-N. He was a contemporary of Freud, and Reich developed this <clears throat> theoretical construct that we uh we had we learned very early in our lifetime to block life energy by creating bo- muscular armor in the body and so he had he had a whole um theoretical construct that as humans we learn to block so-called negative emotions like anger fear jealousy, sadness, by contracting muscles in our body to block the flow of the energy from those emotions. And so his his work was based on kind of reducing or eliminating breaking through that body armor. So he was doing body work, right? Oh, if you are, let's see if I remember this. If you block sadness as your main Emotion that you block sadness covers anger, and sadness we we can look at a person's posture and see that if their chest is all collapsed and their shoulders around it, they're blocking sadness, but under the sadness, there's anger that they need to release, so his theory was that there's this layer of energy blockage trying to hold down the volcano down below, you know if you will so. I got interested in kind of body therapy because I was like, that's good because it bypasses the intellectual process. So in clinical psychology, if I'm a counseling therapist, you come to me and we, we chat for an hour, right? Or 50 minutes. What's going on? How are you feeling? Um, but it's all it's all sort of intellectual. If you don't really connect physically with it, it's pretty easy to avoid really dealing with anything.
0: Yeah, because you do, as a therapist, you're relying on the words the person sitting in front of you chooses to use.
1: Right. And, you know, uh, most therapists will tell you in a 50-minute session, nothing happens until minute 45, and then all of a sudden something happens and then the session's over, right? You know, because the client is, well, I I think all of us are reluctant to admit that we have all this stuff going on. Even though I'm voluntarily... Going to therapy, I'm paying you. I really don't want you to know very much about me. <laughs> I think. I mean, that's you know, that's the sense that I was getting when I was yep. trying to do the psycho, the talk therapy kind of thing. So, so I started reading about Reich and I got interested in those kinds of things, Reichian therapy. Uh, now, Reich was famous in the fifties. He got into a lot of trouble with the U.S. government. Uh, I don't need to go into the whole story, but they burned all of his books, and I couldn't find really anything about him until after I graduated from Kyle State Long Beach. I did what everybody was doing in those days, going to Europe for a little while, you know? And I came across a book about him in a used bookstore in London. Just so, yeah, by so, chance. So
0: back then, what we said in the seventies in in the U.S. you just physically couldn't find anything. I couldn't fi- couldn't find anything. And you were searching for you just couldn't find.
1: Well, <coughs> I yes, for and of course there was no internet then. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I I looked around, I asked around, I was trying to find any books of his. I couldn't, and as I did more research, and to be honest, I don't know how I found this out, but I found out something about Reich that he had gotten into trouble with the U.S. government for the way he was operating, Um, somehow his books got banned uh, and then somebody, some government agency burned the books that were in circulation so, you know, it's been so, it's been years since I've looked at this. I don't know if any of that was really true, but so, at any rate, so yeah, quick question from yes, the producer from the, over the, producer, here, the peanut we were, gallery. Yeah, Reiki sounds a lot like Reiki and they sound very similar. Is there any connection to like the energy healing of Reiki in this guy's research? There is not. Wilhelm Reich, R E I C H, was a uh psychotherapist whose work was all about breaking down the body armor that we create by holding on to Patterns of muscular tension. Reiki, R-E-I-K-I, is a Japanese energy healing technique that may include laying on of hands but isn't really manipulative in any way. Reiki can also be done hands-off and remotely. Uh, My wife is a Reiki master. Um, It's pretty clear that she can send healing energy to, uh, to somebody else somewhere else, not even in the room, not even in the same city, you know. Yeah, So no connection to Reiki? No connection. No. Reich and Reiki. Okay, because totally, that's what I was... Totally uh, separate. Yeah, okay. two different things. Thanks for asking that, Joe. Yeah. That's good. So Reich was popular in the 50s. Uh, his work sort of disappeared for a while, and then it was... Well, it was probably underground, I'm guessing. But then it started to reemerge during the human potential movement in the late 60s, early 70s. And now it was called Neo-Reiki, work. And so some of the other body therapies I would say sort of came out of that same tradition. Well, we're, like, we're like we want to work on the physical body to get at the emotional energy that's being suppressed, you know. So Knowing what you I'm know knowing, now. Know, know. Knowing what you know now. Yeah.
0: 40 years later, 40 40 plus years later. What do you think of that based on your experiences working with people, on people for so long?
1: I I think... And uh, you said
0: something, I think, key earlier that seeing a therapist, massage therapist or sports therapist, you are developing a relationship with that person whether you like it or not. Absolutely, yeah. Which I think creates some emotional connection psychological connection with that individual mm-hmm. and some energy connection there in the room. Yes. Whether you admit it or like it, right. something is happening in that right. room. Right, right. You know, you've been doing this for decades now, yeah. 40 plus years. Yeah. Um, so what what do you think now about, you know, those movements that were going on then, what p- allegedly the U.S. government were trying to suppress um, based on your experience with your clients, with these, you know, um, untangible relationships that are developing and occurring on a daily basis for you.
1: <clears throat> okay, so let me back up and clarify. Um, the government came after Dr. Wright because he was building. Uh, Is it Wright with a T? Uh, Reich, R E I C H, Reich, oh, okay. Reich yeah. Dr. Reich, uh, Wilhelm, Wilhelm Reich. Um, in addition to his sort of body-oriented psychotherapy, because he was interested in life energy, you know, the energy that flows through us in Asian terms, that would be chi, like in martial arts, chi or qi, He called it orgone, O-R-G-O-N-E. And he believed you could collect it and amplify it by building a structure that a person could sit in to sort of recharge if you will Um, and these were structures that were you know they had different layers of different materials and then he was promoting and selling those so I believe the government came after him for fraud for medical fraud and that's what got him into trouble initially and then from what I read he was quite an angry man very uh, like uh, not willing to cooperate with the government, you know he knew better than the, they did you know, so his ego his ego and his suppressed anger got in, in super <laughs> yeah. trouble because he hadn't done enough body therapy <laughs> with someone else and so i'm making light of it, but th- that's why he got in trouble, not because of the body work aspect of his work yeah. so body therapy as uh as a modality is still alive and well in the US and probably internationally. Um, I do believe it's beneficial um, and helpful as long as both parties, the client and the therapist, are uh, open to doing it and the therapist has enough training. So when I did my massage training, I was looking for more of a bodywork school that was focused on some emotional work as well. because. After reading the book about Reich, um, uh, actually in the bibliography there were some contact for some of his students or you know proteges who were still doing something, and there just happened to be a guy by the name of Charles Kelly, who had an institute which was in Santa Monica at the time called the Radix Institute R A D I X, and they were doing trainings for people to do neo-Reikian work with clients. So I came back from Europe. I was living in California anyway, came back to Long Beach. So I went up to the Radix Institute in Santa Monica as a client to experience this work, which I thought was very powerful, I uh, the sort of the emotional aspect Like you say, you live your first 20 years and then you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what the hell you have to do, right? So I got a lot of benefit from doing Radix work. They didn't call it therapy because you couldn't get licensed in this. They called it education, so Radix education. But basically it was a one-on-one session where the, the Radix educator was working with you as a client, helping you to... Start to feel the energy flowing through your body by doing certain massage techniques and breathing techniques to release that stuff, and so I got a lot of benefit out of it myself, and I thought I would go do that training um, and then I realized that oh it's ten thousand dollars to do this training. this was back in nineteen seventy four seventy five i didn't you know i didn't have any money in those days, and then I realized okay I could probably finagle some way to do this training, but then I'd only have a uh, certificate of completion to be an educator, and it, it just didn't feel like that was a viable career path for me. But while I was thinking about this process, one of the requirements for being a Radix educator was to be licensed to touch people. And so they required you to go to have a basic massage therapy program, which was what led me to my first massage training in 1976 because I was still looking at maybe doing that. So that's how I got into massage. (laughs) And and when I I went back to school in 1981 to to, uh, the school that I went to, they had kind of a focus on more body work, not just massage. They were interested in some you know, emotional processing, some psychological issues that come out of doing hands-on work with people. So that's what attracted me to that, to that school and that practice. And when I first came out of massage school, I was focused on doing that kind of more body work, uh, emotional release work, if you will, to help people. I had a degree in psychology, (laughs) Um, but I realized pretty early into my attempt to do that work that I was not equipped at all to handle some of the emotional material that people were releasing during our sessions. So that's what, you know, so then I started to back away from that because I didn't, I just didn't feel equipped, it wasn't fair to the client for me to help them Get to this material and then not know how to help them process yeah. it. You know? Did
0: it make you realize how much people are going through? It did more than you initially thought.
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. There's we all have so much stuff that we don't reveal. Maybe we don't even know about it ourselves. You know? Yeah.
0: I heard you say um the last sometime in the last couple of days that massage sc- schools today are not like they used to be in a um in a, from the educational standpoint um, I'm not sure exactly in what context you said it, but I'd like to ask you about that what mm-hmm. is different maybe from what you because now maybe as a teacher when you step into various institutions around the world um do you notice a difference in terms of how it's taught?
1: The uh, Yeah, the massage education in the U.S., and I can really only spoke, speak for the U.S., um, and not the whole U.S. I haven't been to that many schools, but in speaking with other educators in my field, um, you know, sort of griping about certain things um, – we, we've gone through a couple of periods of massage education. When I went to school for massage therapy, there were no corporate chains operating massage schools. There no, were no uh, community colleges operating massage trainings. Most massage schools in the 60s and 70s were started by practitioners who had a passion for passing on their knowledge to the next generation, you know. Um, the school I went to was founded in San Diego by I think about a dozen practitioners there was a rolfer there were a couple of martial artists there were a few massage therapists who were trained in different areas um, they had, they started in San Diego and they had a branch in LA which is where I went All, most of the, I don't think there were any other massage schools in the US and of course I don't know this for sure but I would guess that The majority of massage schools that were operating in the late 60s, early 70s, even mid-70s, were one shop owned by the founders, run by the founders who came out of that world, right? Uh, Some of the schools got bigger. In those days, there was no uh, standardized training. You know, now in the U.S., we have standardized training and licensure and a lots of hoops for schools to jump through in those days it was it was hippie, it was hippie, you know it was real informal, kind of uh, family oriented. Most of the people who were going to massage school had a felt they were drawn to it, not as a business but as a um, something they were just drawn to do, right They wanted to help people, they felt like maybe they had had good experiences receiving massage they wanted to do that repeat that with other people in their lives or in their community and you know then excuse me i gotta clear my throat
0: (coughs) so um i was gonna ask you together with the school because you obviously chose where to where to study and where to go um why why sports for you as a career
1: well, that just speaks to my evolution as a massage therapist. I started out thinking I was going to do body therapy with people because I liked the I liked the experience that I had receiving that work and like many people sort of feeling like they had a calling you know uh, or a vocation to do some work, I really felt drawn to doing some kind of massage work when I realized that I couldn't really do the emotional release kind of body work therapy, I step back to just do more like regular massage, if you will. And one of the things about doing that emotional release work is, for the most part, I think both people in the room have to have the intention for that to occur. So when I pulled back from doing that kind of work, I saw only occasionally some emotional release, maybe somebody would start to cry a little bit because something happened during the massage that brought that up for them. Um, and I felt perfectly equipped to handle that with you know my background. But for the deeper emotional material that some people were experiencing in those sessions where it was my intention for that to happen, I knew I was just out of my depth. So when I just sort of pulled back to start doing more what I would call regular relaxation massage. Um, that was fine for a while, but I was getting kind of bored, really, you know, doing sort of Swedish massage over and over. And even though I had gone to this school that was focused on body work, I knew a lot of, and I incorporated a lot of techniques beyond just uh, Swedish work. Um, so I first started hearing about sports massage in the early 80s. The uh, the Olympics were held in L.A. in 84. Uh, By then, I was living in San Diego. And I was seeing these advertisements for sports massage trainings to prepare volunteers to work at the L.A. Olympics. Um, So, you know, I just got curious. I didn't pursue it at the time. Um, But, let's see, in 1984, I decided to just go take a a workshop, a seminar in it. And the guy who became my mentor, John Harris, the late John Harris now, um, was running this 50-hour sports massage training in Encinitas, California. So I was living in San Diego. Encinitas is a beach town up in North County, San Diego. Um, Speaking of living at the beach... So I went to this 50 hour training and um I liked John a lot. He was a great instructor. Uh the people in the class were uh, I you know what? I don't remember who was in the class, but I just remember it felt like a really cohesive group.
0: Was this um before you knew anything about John?
1: Yeah, I didn't know him. So this was your this first, was introduction, to first introduction to him. My first introduction to him. I didn't know him. I knew he had gone to a school in San Diego and I knew a little bit about the school, uh but I didn't know him. I didn't really know anything about sports massage. It was like I keep hearing about this, and you know, it's it was inexpensive enough that I figured I would just go do it, you know, and see what happened because I was looking for something else to do anyway. And um, it was really a life changing experience because that set me on my path as a sports massage career. I liked the work, I liked the speed and style of the work, I liked the um, thinking behind the work. I enjoyed working with active people and athletes, even though I'm not one myself. Um, it just all sort of came together for me, so that's that's how I got turned into the direction of doing sports massage as my sort of focused work yeah
0: um, and you know have no background in sports yourself besides those uh, runs back in the well uh, you know a, a little bit of
1: intramural basketball when I was yeah. in high school you know I used to play I played a lot of handball. Learned how to play handball in the seminary, and I played. uh,
0: I played handball for a year. Yeah,
1: and I I played handball. I loved handball, and even when I uh, moved to California, a couple pals of mine we used to go play handball every weekend.
0: It's very uh, underestimated sports in the U.S.
1: and now I'm not. I'm talking about the old style handball with a little hard rubber ball, not Olympic style handball. Which one are you talking about?
0: I'm talking about how small is the ball you're talking? You know, about? it's
1: this big. It's this big around. Really? So really. What,
0: do you, what do you do with that?
1: Hard rubber, super hard rubber. Would you
0: th- you try and score goals with it?
1: No, no, no. Oh. You're talking about the Olympic style okay. handball. Yeah, this handball was uh, in a court like a like a. What's now a racquetball court it used to be. They used to all be handball courts. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard black rubber ball about this big around, and you wear a glove on each hand. If you're lucky, you have pads on the gloves <laughs> because the ball is so freaking hard, man. So, <laughs> but you know, you have a goal wall. You have a line on the wall that you have to hit the ball below for serving. So it has to hit a, sp- a certain area of the wall. You're mm-hmm. serving, and the serve has to come back. Beyond a certain line, so okay, yeah. You have a court. I'm with you. You have a wall. Wh- Whoever's
0: played squash or racquetball,
1: it's probably same kind of thing. Yeah. You know, you have the, you have the two boxes. You serve from one side or the other, and then you have to serve to the uh, opposite corner, right? Yeah. Whatever. So, so th- what I loved about handball is it's ambidextrous because you would hit the ball. You would be hitting the ball with either hand based on where you were. Mm. And I am ambidextrous, so. Uh, I wasn't great at it, but I loved it and I was pretty good, you know. Um, never, never heard of the sports. You've never heard of it. Because racquetball, you've heard of racquetball, yeah. came in and was so popular, uh, it just kind of eliminated all the handball courts, became racquetball courts. People would come and play racquetball. In the but old, would you when the you, old handball games now? You couldn't play that long because it would kill your hands. But, but racquetball, you can keep going. Oh, but uh, would you
0: catch the ball and then release? No, no, no. So you would smack it. It was a smack.
1: Mm. It was a smack. Yeah. We should. Oh, you should, Okay, write down a note. Look up on YouTube. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to re- classic handball yeah, maybe know, as I'll opposed find to it. Olympic handball. Find, I don't <laughs> know.
0: <I've laughs> I'll find it. Yeah, but that was the only sport that you found that yourself was playing. Enjoy.
1: That I enjoyed on a regular basis. I didn't run. I've tried to run a few times. My feet and knees just don't like it. I've tried to, you know. um, I didn't do gymnastics. I rode a bicycle for a while, but it was just for transportation, not for, not like to be a cyclist.
0: Injuries though? Have you faced any, you know, minor, major, medium injuries?
1: No. Knock on wood. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't. Uh, I mean I just have the typical injuries of aging. And actually because we couldn't keep playing handball, uh, we we had to transition to racquetball just like everybody else in those days. Mm-hmm. And I did have an injury. One of my partners, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he smacked me in the eye with a racket Uh and then I had to go to the hospital for a couple of days because there was blood in my eye, and they didn't know if I had a detached retina. Yeah, so I had a couple of stitches, and I stayed in the hospital bed with a patch over my eye for a couple of days until my eyeball cleared. And they went, "Oh, you're fine. Yeah, you're fine right now." That was that's the only sports injury I've had. So,
0: excuse me if this is um, a bit ignorant, um, okay. but sports massage versus regular massage mm-hmm. therapy—what does a sports massage therapist? need to know that a regular massage therapist maybe doesn't know? Um,
1: where, where do they differentiate? Yes, where do they where differentiate? Did, where do they me differentiate? my calves
0: hurt? Yes. How, why, should, why should I go to a sports massage therapist and not to a regular massage therapist?
1: Good question. Um, so really, sports massage is more of a marketing term. Uh, than any particular aspect how it differentiates from regular massage. Generally speaking, I would say that. Um, If you were to go to a regular massage therapist and say, I really sort of wrecked my calves, can you work on my calves? They would work on your calves and you'd probably have good results from it. Um, Sports massage techniques tend to be a little more specific, Um, regular kind of relaxation massage. And this sort of gets back to the educational process as well. Um, Unless a massage therapist has been in practice for a long time, um, they've learned kind of maybe a basic routine for working on people. So let's say, looking at your working on your calf muscles, maybe they'll do some Swedish style effleurage, maybe some petrissage, maybe a little stripping. Very few people do that the broad cross fiber work that we were talking about in the coursework which is which is I would say is actually a specialized feature of sports massage from from what I know. Yep. I learned broad cross fiber work in my training and other sports massage therapists and educators do some version of that broadening of the muscle across the grain of the muscle with the idea that this is a way the muscle doesn't normally move and therefore we can help it function more efficiently because spreading those muscle fibers. And does this really happen? We don't know. It feels like something's happening when we strum across a muscle and it gets supple and it sort of gives under the pressure of the stroke. But we know that I'm starting to dive into kind of a deep hole here, but we know that uh, all the muscles are enveloped in a layer, in a tube of fascia, if you will, and each muscle fiber is wrapped in fascia, and each muscle, all the fibers together are wrapped in fascia, and so are we actually spreading the fibers apart? I don't know. I don't know that there's been any research to show that in fact our hypothesis is correct, but, but it feels like that, something that, good is happening there
0: but is that what you're picturing as well when you're yes working yes on someone? when
1: you're working on someone so as we were talking about in the class, uh regular sort of Swedish and or relaxation massage uh efflorage maybe a little stripping uh and those would all be valuable and beneficial for you um Probably no broad cross fiber, probably maybe some pin and stretch style work because a lot of people sort of figure that out on their own. Certainly, before I was taught to do pin and stretch, I was doing it just because it seemed like a good i seemed like a good thing, right? Um, so, when I think about sports massage and my training in sports massage. Uh, it has to do with our approach to the work and who the client is on the table. If I'm working on an athlete, I have to be thinking about a lot of things like um, where are they are in their training cycle? What kind of stresses do they have on their body based on the sport that they do and where they are in their training cycle? What is too much massage based on where they are in their training cycle? If you're an athlete about to con- Pete in an event in a couple days, I'm not going to do any deep body work on you because you're not going to recover enough to feel like yourself when you come to the event. Yeah. So a regular massage therapist might not really think about that. So yeah. the other thing that I learned in my training as we talked about in, in the class is the Syriax friction work. That is not taught any more in massage schools, as far as I know. Uh, there could be some that are teaching that as part of their training, but your basic massage training would not include that. So I learned that as part of my sports massage training. Um, and there's still a lot of practitioners who do the Syriax deep transverse friction work. For me personally, I've seen excellent results doing that, with, especially with injuries. Um, It's especially useful as a sports massage therapist. If I know you're a runner and you're coming in for regular maintenance massage, I know you're a runner. I'm going to use the friction work as a way to palpate and then sort of examine the tissues that most likely are subject to overuse injuries, so like hamstrings, calves. So we do palpatory exam using friction work, Uh, for assessment to say, well, how are your hamstring tendons doing? How's that ischial tuberosity attachment? Or how's your Achilles tendon doing? As John Harris used to say, healthy tissue doesn't hurt when you press on it. So if I'm in there thinking about that and the stresses you as an athlete put on your body in your sport, I want to examine those structures and go, well, how does this feel? Does this hurt? If it hurts, what's the pain level on it? If you're training for a marathon and your Achilles tendon is sore like to a 2 or 3 on a scale of 10, that's pretty normal for the level of mileage you're putting in. But if it's a 5 or a 6 or a 7, even though you might not have symptoms yet, I know from my experience and from my training that if you keep training at the level you are now in the next month or two months, you're going to come and say, my Achilles are killing me. So as a sports massage therapist, if you're coming to me for maintenance and recovery work, I'm gonna say, Hey, we have an issue here, you know, we can treat it now and resolve it way faster and easier than if we wait until you come in complaining about it. So for me those are some of the differences between, you know, going to just a I, I hate to say regular massage therapist, but a massage therapist who's not focused on sports yeah to somebody who's doing more relaxation work or spa work or maybe some other kind of body work yep. emotional release work but not focused on the act the active athletic client does that make sense i mean was that too long of a discussion not know. too long the um, and no it does it does
0: absolutely make sense uh, um I want to ask you about stretching. You know, you've yeah. you've written um, a couple of books, four yes. is it four books? How many am I, are we talking? One about? book four times. Yeah. One, one, one book, book four, four editions, yeah. But is it so is it all but I thought there was a stretching book and a sports massage book separately.
1: Yes, that's true. This Facilitated Stretching is in its fourth edition now, came out in 1994. Uh, my sports massage book uh, came out in 2019. So mm-hmm. two separate topics in the sports massage book we refer to stretching but we don't go into detail on it because we have another book yeah um
0: but stretching um in your eyes your experience how important is it and i mean i'm assuming it's a topic that you're passionate about if you spend so much time (laughs) writing a book
1: yes yeah yes and uh as you know there's a lot of controversy about stretching people yeah. on both sides of the of the argument can find research that supports their position stretching is good stretching from a good.
0: completely personal experience yes all i can say is the more time i dedicate to stretching the better i feel okay and on the other like uh, to support that mm-hmm. the less time i spend on stretching the worse i feel the worse you feel
1: well then, in your case, stretching is beneficial. It's helpful for you, no matter what the physiological uh, mechanisms are about stretching. And so a lot of the arguments about stretching are uh, about the f- what's actually happening in stretching. Um, and in, you know, in the, again, in the old days, I'm going back to when people used to say, well, you have to stretch because it helps prevent injury, right? There's been, I have to say, a, quite a bit of research on that topic that seems to indicate that stretching is not preventive in, in that way. But again, the quality of the studies might not be there. Uh, I haven't read all the studies. You know, we we can look at these kind of, uh, what do they call them? Uh, meta-studies where they gather a whole bunch of studies about stretching and see if they can parse out some overall overarching theme or result. Um, so most, most of what I read about stretching and injury prevention is that it, it doesn't really make any difference. However, for you, maybe it does. Yeah, so is, right? is, does
0: most research say that it does most not research, make much difference?
1: Most research m- most. Research would say statistically Mm -hmm. the injury rate between people who stretch and people who don't stretch is the same. Therefore, stretching doesn't help prevent injury. But how did they study? Who did they study? What sport are they talking about? I mean there's all these things that I want to go, well, wait a minute. Let's dig a little deeper into that research or that result. So,
0: what counts as an injury, and what
1: counts as an injury? Uh, a lot of athletes don't report injuries even if they have them because it, it's going to interfere with their ability to do their sport. So many elements in in, in all this area where we talk about um, things like this, you know. So, so, as I usually say to people, uh, clients, students in my classes. There's research on either side of the argument. Um, If you read the research, it all sounds valid. Uh, However, in my experience as a therapist, uh, in your experience as a stretcher, it's good for you. It's helpful. In my experience with working with clients of all kinds, not just athletes, stretching, stretching during a massage session feels appropriate. It's pleasurable stretching shouldn't hurt i don't think because if we go back to the nervous system and the brain controlling everything in the body including muscle tightness muscle tension if stretching is painful the the brain is going to if stretching inter, if the brain interprets this stretch that i'm doing with you as painful what's it going to do is it going to let you do it it's going to lock you down go no, no, we got to stop that. We have to protect the tissue. We have to protect the joint, whatever, whatever it is that's sending those nociceptive signals to the brain. So, again, my opinion, stretching should always be pleasurable, never be painful. And, you know, in massage therapy we talk about, well, it hurts, but it feels good at the same time. You know, it's like, man, I'm scratching my arm and I'm killing it. It really hurts to scratch it, but it feels so good to scratch my shoulder. That kind of sensation in massage is usually considered to be great. That's where the therapeutic range of pressure hurts good, hurts a little bit, feels good, don't stop doing that. In stretching, I think even that is a little bit too much input to the brain. And so one of the books, I'm quoting some stretching book, I think it's called Staying Supple. I read it a long time ago, but I think it was that author who said, stretching is a pleasurable experience it should always be a pleasurable experience something that you can continue to do so makes sense that's my opinion um, that's my opinion on on the whole stretching stretching talk. again yeah. it's a
0: um I'm compelled to uh, you know to I'm compelled to stretch um similar to what I told you over lunch today where it's a product that's not necessarily you know, easy to do. Um, no one. It's not. It's not, it's not a uh, a theory that's a quick fix. It's, Correct. It's something that you have to dedicate time to. Yes. Um, and although even if you do it in a pleasurable way, it takes a lot of time to see and feel progress. And I find that idea compelling because, as someone who has stretched in a very disciplinary manner um, over and over again for long periods of time Mm -hmm. and as someone who has taken breaks, minor breaks from stretching Mm -hmm. and just for myself to kind of feel the differences in my body when stretching continuously and when not stretching. Yeah. I do feel better when I do stretch, um, but I also know that it takes more effort, more energy, mental energy, Um, And I know that it's something that when I do get better at, it feels good. Um, And feeling that my hamstring is more flexible actually suddenly makes my hips feel better and my back feel better and my posture feel better as well. Um, And as a result, my running feels better. And as a result of my running feeling better, I have a better day. And as, as a result of having a better day, you know work is better and I'm nicer <laughs> to my friends and my loved ones, so yeah. you know yeah. i think um I, I, besides time, I don't see um any negatives in stretching, and I've been stretching my entire life mm-hmm. um and starting yoga a few months back right. has only made me appreciate stretching more mm-hmm. um, has only made me realize that there's many ways to stretch, um, mm-hmm. not just the conventional technical ways that um, maybe you can read in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, you can for yourself. You can adjust the way you stretch. Um, you can adjust certain stretches. You know, in, like in in my brain, if I close my eyes and someone says stretching, the first thing I think about is someone standing and holding their uh, their heel to their butt, and stretching their quads. Stretching the quads, right. The very traditional stretches, which I think most people, that's what they know as stretching. But stretching doesn't have to be that. Stretching can be standing up straight and breathing in and leaning your shoulder to the right and feeling a beautiful stretch across the side of your body um, while waiting in line in the bank or... To get your Jersey Mike sandwich, whatever it is you're <laughs> doing, but you know, so stretching can be many great things and doesn't have to be a time waster. Mm-hmm. Um, but personally, only good experiences for you in terms of writing a book about stretching, a book about um, or its facilitated stretching specifically, yes. right? Yes. Um, so where does that the facilitated word? Um, where does that come in, and where do the benefits of facilitated stretching versus? Again, I'm using the word "regular" without demeaning it. Um, oh, right, regular
1: stretching—the style of stretching that most people are aware of, like you said. Yeah, everybody and it, knows It's most accessible. Everybody knows how to pull their heel toward their butt to stretch their cat, uh, their quad. Well, actually, not everybody knows that. It's it's amazing. It's amazing when I teach stretching classes how many people don't don't have that image mm. in their head. I, Anyway, uh, so to come back to what you're saying... yeah, no, but that's interesting. So you're yeah.
0: saying, like, am I um, overestimating the knowledge out there in terms of... Um, Maybe. What people, yeah?
1: <laughs> Maybe. You know, we've become such a sedentary society. Um, again, talking about the U.S. mostly. Mm-hmm. But I want to come back to two things that you said. Um, stretching doesn't have to be like a traditional sort of like, oh, I need to have 30 minutes to stretch out before or after I work out. Like you were saying, you could be standing in line... Maybe you do a little side stretch, and it feels so good, right? It's pleasurable. It makes you want to do it again or do it more, right? Um, So I think some, you know, know, we know genetically some people are born with less flexibility than others. So that's a factor in whether stretching feels good to you or not. I've talked to more than a few people who they'll say, you know, yeah. Even when I was a kid, I could never sit cross-legged. I could never touch my toes. Um, you know, I'm not one of those babies who could put their big toe in their mouth. You know, um, so those folks, uh, I'm not sure that stretching would have the same uh, would be the same pleasurable experience that you have. If you're more of a like person with normal flexibility or hypermobility. You're going to feel like stretching. You're going to enjoy stretching more than somebody who's super inflexible genetically. So that being said, uh, to come back to the other thing that you said about stretching having to be a time or not a time waster, but taking up a certain amount of time. What's interesting when I talk to clients, and we're going through their history, you know, especially if they're athletes, almost. And I say, "Well, what about are you doing any stretching and they they almost ninety eight percent of people say, "Oh, I know I should stretch more, but so everybody sort of has this idea that stretching is good for them. It would be really good if I would do more of it. I would feel better, but what they're what they then say is, uh, "I don't have time, you know, and what they really mean is, I don't want to shorten my workout." in order to make time to do the stretching work. So there's some education that has to go on there with clients. It's like, well... Uh, Prioritization. F- yeah, what's, what's your priority? Um, and if there's somebody who's stretched on and off in the past and not seen many results, they're really not motivated to stretch. So <laughs> we have these long circular conversations, but it's good. Coming back to my book, Facilitated Stretching, this is a style of work that I learned in my sports massage training. And again, this is not really taught in normal massage programs. I never learned about it in my massage training. It was only as part of a a program more focused on athletes. So we call the book Facilitated Stretching, just because that's the title that my publisher came up with. It's um, based on proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation or for short PNF which is a physiotherapy modality um, that was came out of, uh, was developed in the early late 40s 1950s and was designed to rehabilitate uh, physical therapy patients in a more sort of holistic synergistic way uh, and the founders noticed that there were certain, patterns of motion in the body, uh, and they were able to try to make use of already uh, reflex loops that were already available in the body that helped muscles to contract or relax or lengthen or not lengthen. And so the basic premise in PNF is that an isometric contraction of a muscle is then followed by a neurological inhibition of that muscle that allows it to move, lengthen more easily, more efficiently. So if you're a person who's been doing passive stretching, regular, regular stretching, if you will, in your lifetime and haven't had a lot of success, or maybe you have had a lot of success but you feel like you've reached the, the end of what you can accomplish on your own, then facilitated stretching is just like maybe the next level of Stretching for you, because we're trying to uh do more to balance the muscles on either side of the joint to allow you to stretch a little more fully, so let's say you you're pretty good at stretching your hamstrings. How do you stretch your hamstrings what what is there a certain position that you favor for stretching? are you asking me I'm asking you now yes I'm turning tables on you Danny Oof.
0: um my favorite way yeah. is the simple stand up straight, mm-hmm. um, breathe in and fold forward um, because that's the easiest one for me. The harder one for me is almost like a half split position where you're like kneeling, mm-hmm. on, one you leg, kneeling on one leg, straightening the other leg.
1: Out in front of you. Out
0: in front of you. Uh-huh. And then leaning forward. And then leaning forward. That one's a bit more difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and playing with those angles to try and get the um, right the three muscles of the hamstrings Ooh, right. um, activated there mm-hmm. is a uh, is a challenge for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Again, the more I do it, the better I get at it, the better I feel. Uh, but if I neglect it and stick to what's easy for me, mm-hmm. then I and then when I do get back to it and attempt it, it's it's it's. Um, it's not as enjoyable.
1: And did you learn that half kneeling stretch uh, when you were playing soccer?
0: Correct or
1: football? If you're in yeah, not outside the U.S., he played football. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Uh, he was a pro, by the way. Did he tell you that? Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so okay, so you have a favorite one that's easy for you, and you have a a, a different positioning that's harder, more challenging for you. If, if I was to say to you, you can only do the harder one from now on, would would you be motivated to keep doing that? Or would you go, ah, ah. You know, I'm, that's uh, not so pleasurable. That second position is not really so pleasurable, is it? I know, but I'm... Okay. Uh, so I'm not challenging I'm not you.
0: O- I'm not okay in the head, so if you told uh, me no, something no. like that, I would probably
1: um, <laughs> enjoy the challenge. I'm not challenging you to do the harder one. Stretching should be pleasurable. Yeah. One, pleasurable, comfortable, love to do it. The other one, not so great. Don't rather, rather avoid it. Yeah. R- rather avoid it. Don't feel like you get a good stretch in that position? It, would that be fair to say or no? No,
0: I think I, I feel like I'm getting way more with, with minor effort. Just by being in the right position and slightly bending, yes. I feel like woo, my hamstrings are working here; uh-huh. they're extending. Um, right. Whereas the comfortable, easier hamstring stretch feels like um, I can keep going and going and going, and I have to keep going in order to feel that sensation of my hamstrings extending and working.
1: In the f- in the first. St- Position that you enjoy more than the second position. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, just sort of to reiterate, if the first position is easy and pleasurable for you, then you're going to be more motivated to do that one. And there's nothing wrong with it being a pleasurable experience. It should feel good. It it shouldn't hurt. And it, even even if you're saying to yourself, "Oh my God, that's really I really feel that stretching." In some cases, that might be too much sensation. Um, the second position where you're kneeling on on a knee and you have your, let's say, your right leg outstretched, heel on the ground, a slight bend forward, already you feel the stretch in your hamstrings because in that position, you're already somewhat stretched out, so it doesn't take much to feel that stretching sensation. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Uh, I think I'm correct in saying that in that position, it's hard for your body to allow the hamstring to relax and lengthen more because it's also at the same time supporting you and stabilizing the and body. Stabilizing yep. you. So it's sort of like a push-pull thing. Should the brain goes well, what's more important, stabilizing? Or stretching, and my theory would be that the brain's going, I'm protecting you by stabilizing you better. If if you don't, if we don't keep you stabilized, you might hyperextend your knee, or you might fall over, or maybe you'll injure the support leg somehow by uh, letting the other side go.
0: I never thought about that that way. So.
1: Um, I think about it in terms of the a classic hamstring stretch, where somebody will put their foot up on a chair or yeah. on a curb or a bar. Kind Which the, is the same thing. It's yeah, kind of same the same thing. thing. Yeah. The the leg is up there, but it's also supporting you. Mm-hmm. You know, if mm-hmm. the leg was if the leg was removed, you'd be on one leg, and what would happen? You'd fall over. Yeah. Right. So, so in, 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 again, in my opinion, I think it's better to stretch tissues out out that are not uh, in gravity, but. Belies the fact that you can be standing and do a a fold over, a bend over stretch as if you were going to touch your toes. Your your legs are still supporting you, but so the muscles are still active in some way, but there's something different about that than having one leg out and the other leg not.
0: But also in a standing stretch, I thinking about it, my quads are contracting and almost stabilizing. They are my body so I can allow my hamstrings to almost relax while I exactly. fold forward.
1: Because, and your quads, when your quads contract, mm-hmm. they neurologically inhibit your hamstrings to allow, to allow you to do what you're doing. So that's yeah. maybe another piece of it. So, How was the um, experience publishing a book? Oh my gosh, that's hard. Books. That is hard, hard, hard. I had no idea what I was getting into. I look at these authors who publish a book every year or whatever. I made mention of Dr. Leon Chetau. He was a British osteopath. He died a few years ago. He was a great guy, prolific author on many topics. I, I believe he published 60 books, if I remember correctly, some enormous amount. Um, for me, when Human Kinetics <clears throat> said to me, um, "We have a lot. We have other people who have more experience and knowledge about PNF stretching than you do, but they can't write about it very well." We like the, your style of writing. I was like. Well, that's kind of cool, you know. I I always thought I wanted to be a writer, but...
0: um Have you always written? No, I
1: haven't always written. You know, I wrote a little poetry, as all teenage boys do. College boys do. Do they? some poetry. I, I think that's a rare do,
0: thing for teenage boys. Oh, okay, well... Maybe nowadays. They, I, I don't remember myself don't, or any of my friends writing poetry, writing but poetry? I find that pretty impressive.
1: Right. You never tried to impress a girl by writing her a little poem? <sighs> You know, maybe, but I—I ah. I, I don't
0: think I would classify that as poetry. Okay. What came out uh,
1: mm. on my pencil, <laughs> better than a limerick, hopefully. Anyway, uh, so so um, so I was like, oh well, okay. If you think I'm a pretty good writer, you know, I can learn more about PNF stretching, right? Um, which is what I did. It, I agreed to—I agreed to write the book. Uh, they gave me a deadline, which I. I don't remember exactly how long it was. I know I had to extend it at least once because I spent. I spent. John Harris and I. No, no. John Harris and I had proposed the sports massage book when Human Kinetic. John came. Harris, who John was Harris, your mentor? my mentor in the sports massage. You went, to, his yep, went to a school, yep. 50 hours. to school. He introduced me to teaching in uh, in his school at that point. Yeah. I worked in a massage center that he had founded. that it was a massage co-op so he was you know he was just a great guy I really liked him a lot first he was my teacher then he was my mentor and friend um, he was moving to Australia with his wife at that time who was who was an Aussie and you know this was again before internet and um, he was like, "Hey you know what." Um, Congratulations on the on the deal from Human Kinetics. I'm, I'm going to be in Australia. I'm really not that interested in doing a book just on that. You just go ahead and do it. So, with his blessing, I I uh, started doing the research. I I read a ton of stuff. Um, in those days, I had more energy. I was you know thirty years younger than I am now, and uh, I could. Uh, do massage during the day, go home and have some dinner, and, you know, go write at night. And uh, my wife was not all that happy about it. She was pleased that I had a book contract. <laughs> but the actual production of the book was very stressful for her for and for me and for us together. Um, so it took me a year and a half to write the book, and then um, lots of editorial changes in the process, approving photographs, going to human... C- no, the first book we did all the photo shoot i we hired a photographer in Colorado Springs. And we did the photo shoot a um, lot of elements, a lot of components I never had thought about um, and I was very happy with the first edition, but as i you know as I looked at it over the years, I could see there were a lot of mistakes that we made i wasn't a very I wasn't as good of a writer as I thought I was. Hopefully in the four editions, uh, in the three subsequent editions, I've become a better writer. I know more about the topic because I've been teaching it so much.
0: How long on average does it take to write a new edition of a book? A year and a half. So uh, it's still I'm almost very, like writing a new I'm book. I'm a very
1: slow writer. It's like writing a new book. And human kinetics, their uh, sort of parameters for a new edition is there's got to be a certain amount of new material. You just can't be rehashing the same. So every time it was time for a new edition and they would come to me and say, you know, it's been about five years and sales are dropping off a little bit. Do you have any – do you want to – let's let's do a second edition or third edition. Um, or fourth now. Or a fourth now, which I think is the final one. Um, we had to come up with a different slant on the work, a different way to talk about the basic facilitated stretching work but bring in material that we hadn't introduced before. So that was a challenge because sometimes I'd have to go learn some more stuff. And in my first edition, I had a co-author who was a physical therapist, which is very helpful. Um, so in the second edition, we added some more sort of physiotherapy styles of uh, treatment work. Well, that's when I think it was the second edition we started doing, adding some treatment work or some sequences of a whole, uh, here's stretching sequence for runners here's a stretching sequence for cyclists which we've maintained in the, in the other editions so it is like like I said earlier I've written one book four times and every every one is different um, there's more research and in the last edition there's like tons of research that shows that, you know, stretching isn't really that valuable. So yeah. I'm thinking to myself, why am I writing another book? <laughs> but, <laughs> but in my practice, in my experience, in watching other people learn how to do facilitated stretching, I mean, I just, I see the benefit. And the fabulous thing about facilitated stretching work is you sometimes see instantaneous changes in range of motion, which motivates the client who maybe has been a stretcher Tried to stretch, never found any results from it. They see the results like during a session, you go, Oh my gosh, I just gained ten degrees of range of motion just like in three minutes, which motivates them to do what you've been talking about, the long term practices where the benefit comes. Stretching once in a while, you don't really know. What see did
0: um what did John Harris mean to you in life?
1: Well, I just am so thankful to have met him. Uh, He was—I liked him as a person. He was eccentric. Not everybody liked John Harris, Um, but those students of people who studied with him long enough really uh, came to love him a lot. And um, uh, you know, I had when I moved to Colorado and he moved to Australia, we kind of lost touch for a while, and then things changed. He moved back to California, and we were in touch a little bit, and a few years before he passed away, he finally published a book that contained a lot of the material that we wanted to have in our sports massage books. I was so pleased for him. He did a great job with it, and then, unfortunately, he passed away from, I believe he had Parkinson's, and I didn't know he had passed away until a year after he was gone. Uh, anyway, he really launched my career path so I'm just I love the work that I do and I love him for being that guy you know I'm getting a little teary when I talk about him, but so I miss him a lot too so anyway that's (laughs) that's what he meant to me yeah
0: Please tell people where they can find your material, your books, um, your online content. You have uh, live classes that you teach as well. Obviously, your yeah. classes will be, the uh, online courses will be live on uh, Neil Asher Education. Sometimes in the next couple months, um, so please keep an eye out. Uh, but please tell people where they can find you.
1: Uh, well, if you Google my name, Bob Mcatee, AKA the Stretch Man, uh, also known as the Stretch Man. Uh, if I'm doing my uh internet uh, SEO stuff well, my name will pop up in the first page of the Google search. My website is called stretchman.com because when we developed a website, all I had was the stretching book. <laughs> so in you know, in hindsight it should have been bobmack.com. Uh, but anyway, my email address is stretchman at stretchman.com. Please don't spam me. Um and uh you know i'm happy to hear from any listener or any any anyone who's interested in learning more about what I do on my website that we have a lot of different categories we haven't even talked about the massage tool that I invented, but I have a my website the first page is sort of like a newspaper page and then you can click on my practice uh, my teaching my publishing the my the massage tool that I invented and in in amongst that mix there's a workshop page that lists all my live classes you know during covid i really i never wasn't traveling nobody was traveling i finally now that the pandemic has settled down to a tolerable level i guess um, i have a few live classes scheduled in the us um, in the past i've taught in the uk i've taught in new zealand i've taught in singapore i've I uh, would love to get back to doing some international travel, but that's maybe – I don't know if I'm going to be doing that again or not. I need to be invited, number one. Uh, and some of those trips, it was great to do it, but you know, it was a, financially a terrible decision. But <laughs> it was fun anyway, and it was great, well, to, well, it was also, great to meet international. As, as, we, as we
0: did um, – most of this podcast, you know, circling back. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to be a uh, French translator <laughs> so that you could travel, right? Yes, so I could travel. Ended exactly. Up right. anyway. Yes.
1: Um, and you know what? Just as an aside, none of my books have been published in French yet, and I keep asking my publisher, yeah. how come we don't? Have, we have Italian, we <laughs> have Spanish, we have Ooh. Portuguese, we have Chinese and J- Korean. Why don't we have French yet? And how is your French? Uh, my French is... Uh, um, uh, <laughs> I could... S- <laughs> I could, uh, anyway, not very, not good at all. Let's just say that.
0: (laughs) So good to have you here. So good to finally meet you in person. Um, And hopefully we have a chance to sit down, drink beers again, um, and have a good time. I I look
1: forward to it. It was just a pleasure to hang out with you the last few days. Uh, You know, we spent a lot of time chatting online, uh, video chats, but nothing like seeing you in person and having you here to guide me through this whole online education uh, process. Fascinating for me, challenging for me, and uh, you, you have made the results so much better than it would have been had you not been here to guide me through the process. So thank you for that.
0: Thank you very much.